Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today, Smart Talk takes you from Pennsylvania's forests and streams to the state's cities. Up front, the Wildlife Leadership Academy. High school-age kids spend a week learning to become conservation ambassadors to ensure a sustained wildlife, fisheries, and natural resource legacy for future generations. That's taken directly from their mission statement. But how do they become stewards for the environment and how do they become leaders? Joining us on the program today is Michelle Cattell, who is Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Institute for Conservation Education. Ms. Cattell, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the line is Gary Alt, a name that is uh, familiar here in Pennsylvania, but he is now in California. He is a wildlife biologist and photographer. Mr. Alt, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to join us, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Michelle Cattell, let's start with some of the basics. What is the Wildship, Wildship, how about Wildlife <laughs> Leadership Academy? The Wildlife Leadership Academy is a program for teenagers ages 14 to 17. And um, really, it's a, a leadership training program that involves conservation. So the short of our mission, you read the long version, but the short of our mission is to create the next generation of conservation leaders. Uh, and that has a couple parts to it. We have a method to our madness uh, to working with teenagers. And um, that begins with summer field schools that focus on a single wildlife or fish species. And we use that species as a springboard to teach about ecology, biology, habitat, habitat management. Um, and then we do that in the form of a five-day residential camp. So the kids stay overnight, and it's like a boot camp. So they're up at 7 in the morning. They don't go to bed till midnight. And um, no cell phones, which everybody's always happy oh, to hear boy. about. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if everybody's happy to hear yeah, about that. Actually, the kids don't seem really? to mind. Sometimes That's the parents good. are the ones who mind more. You know, I think they're so used to being in touch with their kids. So, um, Yeah, so that week we really put them, you know, we put them, we try to teach them that when there's a stressful time in your life that you can really get through that. And so we use this mechanism of teaching about wildlife and take that interest and um, really push them to their limits. So... They learn from the experts in the field, folks like Gary and um, other wildlife biologists, wildlife and fisheries biologists across the state. So we have a lot of support from the Game Commission, the Fish and Boat Commission. And so, you know, the, the bear biologist comes in to teach the kids about bear. Uh, so they're not just learning about bear. They're learning from the person who actually does that for their career. So they get to see that. And maybe they'll want to be a bear biologist one day or a plant ecologist. So um, it's, it's a great opportunity all around. And then it's very academic. And then the second part of the program is we actually ask them to think, you know. So we do a town hall meeting based on various things that are going on in the conservation right now. For example, thing, some of the stuff going on with Marcella Shell and mm. the pipelines coming in or stormwater management and, um, what, you know, in cities. And they actually have to represent different points of view. So we're not just asking them to memorize and give us feedback we're actually asking them to think and that in turn creates um it brings out this leadership in them and it empowers them and um, gives them a lot of confidence by the end of the week i want to play a little this is you have a trailer online and uh, i want to just play a little bit of it uh, just to, for conversation's sake sure. you actually our listeners can hear you right at the very, very beginning but uh, here we go about 10 years ago uh, many people had a vision about bringing a program from Texas to Pennsylvania and that program turned out to be Wildlife Leadership Academy. I think it's challenged most of the students 
in a way that they probably weren't expected to be challenged. It's amazing the, the knowledge and experience that comes together in order to teach these kids. But even more amazing is that we're getting that information to the right kids. These kids are incredibly smart, incredibly enthusiastic. These are the leaders of tomorrow. All right, so there are several parts of that there, uh, but I, I, I wanted to, something that you said and that we just heard there, the leaders of tomorrow, how are those students identified? Well, we actually have a nomination process, so we reach out to the people who know these students, teachers, mentors, Boy Scout leaders, Girl Scout leaders, and we ask them to nominate a student to attend the program. And then the students themselves, once they're nominated, we send them more information, inviting them to apply. And then they have to complete an application, write an essay, uh, let us know about some of the community work that they're already doing. And uh, so we're really getting kids that are already have um, a spark, you know, a spark and an interest in conservation. And we hope to turn that spark into a passion and a fire, something that they'll carry on with them th for the rest of their lives. So what was the idea behind doing this in the first place? Um, well, the, the idea came before my time uh, with uh, the Institute and the Academy, and um, uh, I believe there were some folks went down to Texas. There's a program in Texas called Texas Brigades, and um, some folks went down there, and they were really interested in bringing it back to Pennsylvania and doing something similar. So the, a group of people got together and had the idea, and then as an organization, we decided to take it on. Um, I talked a little bit about the field schools, but the second part of the program is really what I think makes it special, which is that after the program, after that week of camp is over, we stay in touch with these kids. We send monthly e-newsletters, and we ask them, in fact, a part of a requirement in becoming a conservation ambassador through our program is that they go back to their community and give back through education, service work, media engagement, like I'm doing right here. Um, through the creative arts and through outdoor mentorship, getting other kids outdoors, teaching kids how to fish, hunt, and different types of things like that. You know, as I was researching the program, I got to thinking um, that, you know, 40 years ago, uh, I think back to the first Earth Day in 1970, and where a group of people got together and said, well, you know, we have to be stewards of the environment and uh, conservationist. This kind of takes it to a new level. and. One of the things that's happened over the past 40 years is that people do care about uh, the environment now and do care about those future generations. Uh, you, you wonder, and that leads me to this question. Gary, don't worry, I'm going to bring you in on this in just a uh, moment. No problem. <laughs> uh, leads me to my next question is, what are the attitudes of young people toward the outdoors, toward conservation, toward the environment? Well... I do think they care. And to be frank, one of the things I've learned with teenagers is not to have any expectations. Um, and that might sound odd, but, um, you know, kids, a teenagers, a teenager, we've all been there. So, you know, you know, you can't expect them. I expect them to be teenagers, but we'll go through a week and Gary can attest to this. I've had students who wouldn't say a word all week and then come up to me at the end of the week and say, I've changed, you know, this program's changed my life. And so I, for me, I try not to you know, I assume because they're there, they have an interest. And I think um, as adults, when we just kind of invest in these kids and pay attention and trust, you know, that they know what they're doing um, and then give them the tools and, and pay attention to them, that 
they can take these ideas and that, like I said, this kind of spark that they have and turn it into a passion. So I do believe kids are really interested and it's our um, role to, to take that interest to the next level. And that's what we do with the Wildlife Leadership Academy. Mm-hmm. So, Gary Alt, as I said in my introduction, uh, you're well known here in Pennsylvania for uh, your knowledge of, uh, and when Michelle mentioned bears, uh, bears of course, but then uh, white-tailed deer here in Pennsylvania as, as well. Um, as someone who has worked in this field for so long, uh, what do you see with the younger generation? What What is it that they need to learn, and what is it they want to learn? Well, first of all, I, what I see is hope. <laughs> and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, as people age, they often tend to become negative about the way the kids are, and we don't uh, often express uh, hope about what will happen with them. And I think uh, if you... If you come to the Wildlife Leadership Academy camp and you watch the kids when they first come, you may still have that feeling. But when you watch them mature and change over a five-day period, we only have them about 100 days, it's a remarkable transformation. And when you see the capabilities that these kids have, it gives you hope for the future. These kids really have what it takes to lead in the future. And uh, when you actually watch the transformation, it's one of the most stimulating things you could ever imagine. It's just like, wow, this makes a difference and that's why that's why I'm involved and that's why I think a lot of the other instructors got involved because um, it's kind of like passing the baton to the next generation these kids are just getting started but boy it's like planting seeds in a garden only you watch them grow at at a fast pace you know it's really remarkable what kind of transformation I mean, Michelle just described it, you know, yep. uh, a young person who didn't say a word all week, that, yep. but then after a week says their life has changed. Yeah, I think what happens is is that uh, it's so intensive and so shocking for them, and also you remove them from the social media, you know, by removing their electronics, you know, their computers, uh, their cell phones, and then you press them really, really hard. I mean, we are giving these, for example, in bear camp, within an hour of when their when their parents drop them off, they're holding the heart of a bear in their hand, or they can be. I mean, we do necropsies. We have three. Uh, veterinarians that come in and they unzip them from stem to stern and we show them all the organs of the bear we talk about form and function how these organs work and so on i think that's kind of a shocker right off the bat and then one after another after another we have these uh dynamic speakers who come in and speak you know some of the leaders in the state on whatever animal we're talking about i think it makes them feel special uh i think also that i don't think they most of them have never been pushed this hard in their lives before what I think happens is that they come to realize that their capability is ten times more than what they thought it was, and that gets them excited, and it starts making them think about the future. And uh, that's a format you can't really do in the normal school programs, but I think that that's what makes this program different than the others. And at the end of the week, we've had parents, you know, uh, send letters back or call back saying, "Wow, the kid I dropped off is not the one that I picked <laughs> up." And they're at that formative age too, I think, and and. For a lot of them, I think they just kind of um, think, wow, I, I have the capability of doing this or this. I could be this if I wanted to be. They actually meet people who have been really successful, and I think it, it works as a kind of a role model for them. They might have different interests that they want to pursue, but that's not the point. It's not the content of the program. I think it's the process of the program that the students, they get confidence. Well, Michelle, what is that process? 
During the week? So during the week, well, as Gary said, you know, the parents drop the students off on a, let's say, a Tuesday morning. And he shocks them with a bare heart. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and, and it's true. That's, um, you know, we just, like I said, we don't have these expectations. We just throw them in the mix. um, And, you know, the kids are actually into teams that week. So um, we actually accept only 20 students per camp. So the the idea of the program is... Um, low enrollment, high quality experience, and then the kids are put into these teams and the teams compete against each other. So that also creates this fun, um, competitive dynamic. And so, and they have a lot of lectures and we always get the feedback that they don't want the lectures, but everybody knows that you have to, um, you know, learn it in front of you sometimes and then you get the hands-on stuff. For example, where we have, we have a grouse camp, um, a deer camp, and uh of the bear camp and those kids learn about plants they actually do plant collections that week we have some of the best bot- botanists in the state there teaching the kids uh, they learn the scientific names of those plants how to identify them and then they also do creative arts so i teach the i teach the students how to nature journal uh, gary lectures at one of the field schools about nature photography tim flanagan uh, lectures at the and teaches them the you know the way to create a picture or the best way to create a picture and we actually do that throughout the week so they have to take a nature photo and you know their team gets scored on that so we have all these little ways another great example is which i just love this uh each kid gets a quote for the week so words of wisdom and um this is again where you feel surprised and some of these kids already have their own words of wisdom and, and they say what it means to them and that's really where you see less of the teenager and more of the young adult come out of them and you know like you were just asking that that passion is really inside them and they're just you know waiting for someone to open it up and uh yeah so it's it's a I think it's a very exciting week where I'll get really tired but you know sometimes when you get tired those barriers breakdown yeah been there yeah (laughs) you're listening to smart talk on witf your home for npr news and all things regional i'm scott lamar we're talking about conservation for the future the future uh uh, generations and uh uh, one of the ways that they're learning about uh, conservation in the future the environment is uh through Wildlife Leadership Academies here in Pennsylvania. Our guest today, Michelle Cattell, Executive Director for the Pennsylvania Institute for Conservation and Education, and Gary Alt, who is a wildlife biologist and photographer. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Now, of course, uh, the students who are participating in the Wildlife Leadership Academy, if they're doing that right now, which they're not, uh, they wouldn't be able to Facebook a question or a comment, <laughs> as we have found out uh, when they turn that in. You say that uh, the, the, the kids actually seem to enjoy that. that that's kind of a surprise. When you, uh, like some of the things that we do, we do mock TV interviews, for example, uh, and radio and other PR. One of the, one of the things that is interesting is like uh, I often will help along with the TV interviews and you ask them about the program and the stuff that comes out of their mouths is really shocking a lot of times they yeah they're under a lot of pressure but there's something about being under you know uh, for all of us I think a lot of times when we're under pressure we're growing 
and something good is happening. It's hard to do, but when you start to realize what you're capable of doing, it's a very exciting process. And time and time again, you'll hear these kids say, this is the best camp I've ever been to. It's, and they're, very ex- they're really excited about it. And I think, I think they've shocked themselves about what they're capable of doing, and they're so excited about it. I remember one girl who we couldn't get her to speak hardly at all, and when she did, she'd just whisper. And, uh, and then we saw her getting more and more involved in the competition. And at the end of the week, I remember I asked her, I said, how has this camp impacted you? And she stood up real tall and said, this camp has given me my voice. It's loud enough you could hear her 100 <laughs> yards away. You know, It wasn't just what she said. It was her whole demeanor, the way she felt, the way she presented herself. She really came out of her shell. It's not uncommon to see that happen. Every time we, want, we run one of these camps, all of us, the instructors and everything, kind of look at each other for the first 48 hours and say, I'm not sure this group's going to make it. You often feel that way in the first day or two. But as the competitions increase and as they have to start producing, you know, for the po- to put together the PowerPoint program or to build their trifolds or particularly who's going to represent their group at the town hall meeting or have this mock mayor and the town council and so on. And it's in that process when it's all happening concurrently. So they have a lot of things they have to be doing. They're working really hard. But you'll watch them uh, form these small groups to decide who's going to represent us here or there. And the leadership kind of bubbles up just like boiling sap. What's left at the end is the leaders. And you'll see them uh, delegate responsibilities, stand up in front of people at these mock public meetings and give presentations that are far superior to what you'll see at most public meetings. I mean, these kids are amazing what they're able to do. We give them background information, for example, at the, at the deer camp. We might have, uh, we have uh, four groups. Each of those four groups will represent a different point of view of society. One might do animal rights. Another one might do uh, what the Wildlife Society might present or the Landowners Association, for example, things like that. We give them lots of information about what each of those parts of society might say, what their views are, how they act and behave and represent their views at meetings, and then they have to represent that when they get up there. Then they get cross-examined by the mayor and the town council members and even other people of opposing views and stuff. It is remarkable how well they can debate that, you know, after just less than 100 hours. You know, you said, Gary, that uh, it almost sounds like uh, you learn more or they, they are a level above what your your normal town hall meeting oh, yeah. is. And that's just what you described. It sounds that way. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, it sounds like the format, first of all, kind of leads to that. But, yes, you need uh, the young people to uh, to step it up and really know their stuff and what they've done during the yeah. week. So. Michelle, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, when do you see kind of a light go on uh, during the week, or do you? I guess everyone's different. It's so interesting, and I think Gary alluded to this a little, is that um, I would, you know, the camp is just five days, and so the first two days were always a little concerned <laughs> because the kids are quiet. And anybody that's listening, if they've ever been to summer camp, they've probably had this experience where you're shy, you get there, you don't know anybody, and um, and then usually it's around on day two or three, and I have to say, it's, sometimes it's silly stuff, like the kids take vans to get places here and there. Sometimes that's where they do the most team building and get to know each other, because like I said, they just let loose, and then at some point, they go from being shy, not knowing each other, to best friends and not wanting to go home. Um, and I'd say that's probably about after... Day two of our program is quite long. Like I said, we're up at six in the morning and we don't go to bed till midnight. And that day is usually very academically intensive. 
And I think after they get through that day, they really have that kind of, you know, I can, I can do this. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where the transition is is knowing that, um, you know, they can get through something, something they never even knew they could, you know, do or try. And uh, yeah, so I always like to think, you know, um, when you set expectations high, you, and then people will rise to meet them. Um, and so, and that's what we're doing with these kids. We really create these high expectations and they do rise to meet them. And I just think that's, again, going back to, you know, talking about kids these days and, and their impact. And, you know, I think challenging them is one of the best things we can do for them. Now, from what you described, they are kind of focusing in on one animal species or, but they're learning a lot around it. Uh, just curious, um, about the, the when we're talking about today and the future, uh, when you hear from uh, these kids, what are their biggest concerns about the environment, about uh, the the world that we live in today and uh, in the future? I think you know it's sometimes we we do we ask them that why they think conservation education is important and you know they still say the simple things like littering and and, and things like that and so I think what we do is kind of broaden their view on what they can do and and i think they are concerned about the most basic things that that they've learned about in life so far and they certainly they know about water quality and um and you know just simple things when they're first starting out and they are still concerned that uh, people too the people factor that people want to that people need to know that they need to do better for the environment and so like i said we take that little bit of interest and we kind of create this broad perspective so for example at the bass field school that was new this year and we did that in partnership with the pennsylvania fish and boat commission and gary helped you know worked with the the staff there to develop the curriculum we all know that there's issues with the susquehanna river in pennsylvania and so i was so excited to be able to take these kids that are like little sponges and teach you know kids that will will meet in one area of the state and then go across the state and teach other people about what's going on, about the issues with the Susquehanna River. Um, you know, and, and uh, they learn not only the macroinvertebrates that are in the river, but they learn about stormwater management. Um, so I think I think it's you know it's really important that we're we're doing this work. When you said that uh, at first it's kind of the simple things like littering and. Uh, uh, water quality. What about uh, some of those big issues like climate change? Do you ever hear from uh, kids that say that I'm concerned about the the future? We do. Certainly there's kids that are, you know, we have a spectrum of kids that maybe have not had a lot of experience to some kids that are just um, outstanding. As I mentioned, we do this outreach. The kids have to, they do the outreach after the program and they actually have to record what they do, say who they met with, take a picture, and they report that outreach back to us in the form of a record book well that record book sometimes is two inches thick mm. you know so there's the kids that are certainly going above and beyond um we actually have a youth written blog which is something i'm really proud of too because you think kids don't want to be involved kids don't want to do that well our kids write you know we have kids writing weekly for this blog or we're publishing weekly and they're writing about the environment or their trip to national parks um so i do think there's kids you know, our expectation of this program is that we don't, we're not expecting everybody to go be a wildlife or fisheries biologist, but we want to create good, thoughtful, concerned citizens. And um, and certainly a lot of those kids are going to go on to, to be that kind of citizen. Uh, Gary, as a wildlife biologist, um, what do you 
hear from uh, the, the young people who participate. I mean, I, I'll ask you kind of the same question I did, Michelle. Uh, you know, what are some of the issues that uh, they see, some of the challenges they see coming in, and what are some of the big lessons that they do take away, the specific big lessons? I think the most important thing is is that these kids are kind of a reflection of all of us. I mean, we have been bombarded with so much information that we tend to repeat what's easy. And we're, you know, a million miles wide and a quarter of an inch deep. We try to teach these kids to think. Your brain is your friend. And we get into all kinds of debates and everything else, and we start pushing them. Why? Why is this? Why is that? We have people who come in and speak specifically about the politics of every species in terms of what are the issues and why can't we do a better job managing wildlife species what's in the way why does how does that happen and then we so we press them and they they're not just answering questions we'll drill down on them and say why do you think this is the way it is what evidence do you have that pretend you're in a court case show me your evidence and don't just because you hear stuff on television or hear it on radio or you hear other people you may even respect say things. That doesn't make it true. It's just an, an idea. And so it's your job to drill down on that and figure out what is the truth, because often you'll find out the truth is not at all what you're hearing. I think that's an important concept for kids in life in general, because instead of just repeating things over and over and over, like parrots, we teach these kids to think. You know, they're thinking and saying, really, is that what you think? Why do you think that? Tell them, and then they'll start asking, where's your evidence? You know, that kind of thing. I think that's really important. These kids are exposed to over 20 instructors at each camp. So they get to see a lot of different faces and a lot of really well-trained people. And I think, uh, and then what I try and do is the, is the curriculum coordinators to come in and reinforce these concepts. If I can see where what, something that was said two or three days ago relates to this after the instructor's done, then I'll say, let's, let's go back and visit this. But I think one of the important things that we teach these kids more than anything is how to think and how to be rational uh, and to not just run with some idea just because somebody says something. You want to think about it and make sure it's true before you act on it. Mm-hmm. I want to thank both of you for uh, being with us today. Uh, Michelle, for those listening out there, uh, maybe parents uh, or grandparents, and I don't know, maybe we have some young people listening, but probably not because they're in school. Uh, what ages again are we talking about? 14 to 17. Okay. How can uh, someone become involved and uh, maybe uh, be nominated and uh, become a student? It's actually very easy. They can just go to our website, uh, wildlifeleadershipacademy.org, or just Google Wildlife Leadership Academy. And then right on the front page there, we have a nominate button. So if you're a student that's interested, have a, have a mentor nominate you, a teacher. And uh, if you're a parent, then I would say also find your, find your child's mentor and uh, have them nominate your son or daughter. And uh, we'd be excited to see their application this year. We got a good summer coming up. We're we're thinking about adding a turkey to the field school to the field school list, and uh, maybe a program specifically on plants in 2018. So we've definitely got a lot of opportunity coming up, and uh, we're very excited about this next year. Well, and we have a link to the website as well on our website, witf.org. Michelle Cattell is executive director of the Pennsylvania Institute for Conservation Education, and Gary Ald is a wildlife biologist and photographer involved in the program. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Those of you who listen to WITF on a regular basis have heard stories from Keystone Crossroads, a public media initiative covering both challenges and solutions for distressed cities. Keystone Crossroads is a collaborative reporting project of partner public media stations WITF, WHYY, WESA, and WPSU. Now there's a new way to learn more about Pennsylvania cities. It's called Keystone Crossroads Grapple, a podcast that gives voice to people living and working in distressed communities. Now, I want to listen to a, a trailer that we have here. You can give you an idea of uh, Keystone Crossroads. You're walking through the door knowing the town is struggling because every town in the area is struggling. And young people, they're not going to stay here. There's no opportunity. There's no financial opportunity. This is Grapple, where we go to places that were once vibrant, but they struggle today. We don't have a bank. We don't have a grocery store. I don't know what the future holds. If we don't get some business and stuff in here, it's a dying city. You probably know a community like this. It could be where you or someone in your family grew up, or a neighborhood nearby, or a place you drove through. It could be where you live right now. It's just sad, you know what I mean? They need to bring some money back and get this community thriving and striving again. Between the loss of manufacturing and small businesses, there are so many areas that have lost jobs, and they've lost population and tax revenue. There's a lot of houses falling apart, and a bunch that had caught fire that nobody has done anything with, so they're just sitting there half burnt. So it seems like the town's kind of falling apart. I'm Naomi Starobin, and Grapple is a new podcast that gives voice to people living and working in distressed communities. We'll hear stories about how communities have changed over time and what they're grappling with now. This neighborhood has the potential to be gentrified, and we need, as a community, to be on guard. And we need to make sure that people who live here get a chance to stay. And for our first season, we're taking you to Pennsylvania. I think there's uh, a lot of areas in the United States that are in a similar situation and, you know, there's no easy solution. So you just kind of got to make the best of it and do what you can to uh, make it a better place. After we visit a place, we'll break down the big issues affecting these communities and what to do about them. Subscribe to Grapple on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you just heard Naomi Sterabin, who is the editor, and Stephanie Marotis is the executive producer of Keystone Crossroads Grapple. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Okay. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call if you have a question or comment or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Grapple. First of all, I, I think we probably need to uh, kind of talk a little bit about Keystone Crossroads because here at the station, since we hear it every day and learn about it every day, we're very familiar with it. But for someone tuning in, maybe not familiar with Keystone Crossroads, Naomi, what is Keystone Crossroads? Sure, Scott. Well, you described it well at, at the at beginning of the program. Um, we are four public media stations in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, and State College, and we work together, and we've been doing this for more than two years now, to do stories about uh, the cities in Pennsylvania, the distress that people who live in cities are seeing, what's being done to relieve some of the cities of the distress. And, you know, th this is an incredibly important topic now uh, with the presidential election. We've seen 
Clinton and Trump and others come through the state, stop in places like Scranton and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and near Harrisburg, as I recall, um, and talk about some of these issues that are really core to our reporting. Um, so we cover everything from what's wrong with infrastructure to transportation to what kind of policies are city and state leaders implementing that are helping or not helping the distress that solution that uh, cities are seeing. We've just added a full-time education reporter to talk about how does Pennsylvania fund education, how is that changing, and who kind of wins and loses with those changes. And just one other thing I want to say about Keystone, and that is that instead of just talking about distress, which could tire listeners out very quickly. <laughs> we talk about solutions. We've gone to other cities in Pennsylvania and outside of Pennsylvania and outside the United States, as a matter of fact, to see how are people in other cities around the world solving some of these problems? Would it work in Pennsylvania cities? All right. Now, Naomi, I'm going to surprise you here with this question, but uh, you brought it up, so I have to ask the question. Okay. Uh, the presidential candidates have done a lot of campaigning in Pennsylvania. Obviously, Pennsylvania is very important to both campaigns. Have they addressed the challenges facing cities specifically? Huh. Well, you know, we, we just did a couple of stories exactly about that. Um, the candidates have sort of very different takes on how to fix things. Um, Trump is complaining about NAFTA um, and its impact on uh, businesses in Pennsylvania and beyond. And, and Clinton has talked about training the workforce and education and things like that. So I'm not a political expert. I can't sit here and say, you know, one candidate has better ideas than the other. Clearly, their ideas are capturing people. And Pennsylvania is a place where, you know, over and over again, the, the analysts say this is a critical place uh, for, for the election and the results of the election. But, and, and again, I'm just going to push a, a little bit further with this. Uh, when the candidates have been in Pennsylvania, you talk to a lot of people, not just you, but uh, everyone uh, who works on Keystone Crossroads. Uh, what are the people in the city saying that they want to hear the candidates address? What are some of the issues that the uh, people in urban areas want to hear the presidential candidates discuss? Well, look, we've seen major deindustrialization in all these cities. We've seen the coal business go away. We've seen steel go away, and others too, depending on which community you're talking about. So some candidates are promising he or she is going to bring it all back, right, um, which feels kind of impossible. Um, and actually, we get into it in one of our podcasts. Um, and others are saying, well, we need to retrain the workforce, and we need to you know, change policies so that we can attract businesses. And and reward small entrepreneurs and small business people for starting something new and interesting. Um, so I'd, I'd say on the ground, uh, and you'll hear it in our podcast when we talk with people, there's a, this mix of nostalgia. I want what we had before back. I want that. I want revitalization by going back to what we had. Other people are saying, no, 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 we have to restructure. We have to incentivize new kinds of businesses, and that's how we're going to sort of find our future, rather than relying on one industry like steel or coal, we need to sort of diversify. And we're going to talk about uh, one of the, it's not a city, but uh, a municipality that you do focus on. Uh, it's actually not too far from us, Mahanoy City uh, in exactly. Schuylkill County uh, in just a few minutes. But before we do, why a podcast? Why did you decide to do a podcast? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, they're really fun. That's not even one of the actual reasons, but it just came to <laughs> mind that, you know, it's sort of like, let's do a show. Let's put on a show. It's definitely um, really fun. Know how much, 
Yeah, a lot of work, but a lot of fun. Okay, all right, so go ahead. Stephanie, Stephanie and I burn the midnight oil a lot. Having fun. Start, start up here. Yeah, it's a startup. Little did we know. But, but anyway, so, so podcasts are a way to spend a, a lot more time with with issues and with the people who we talk to for these shows. You know, when you when you do a story for Morning Edition or All Things Considered, which is what your listeners have heard a lot of from Keystone Crossroads and others, you know, they're limited to three or four minutes. Sometimes you get six or seven. So they're fine, but what if we want to have a longer conversation with somebody or take somebody through a city, meeting people, seeing places, and really digging deep into the issues? That's what we're able to do with the podcast. That's number one. Number two, we can reach a different audience here, right? We know that the NPR tip audience is probably mid-50s or so, um, and so podcasts are something that are reaching a different audience, a much younger audience, and also people outside of Pennsylvania, people outside of the listening area of the four stations uh, that Keystone Crossroads is uh, is working with. All right. Now, I mentioned, I kind of teased it a little bit, that uh, uh, one of the areas that uh, you'll be looking at that you already have, but uh, when that the audience can hear when uh, Grapple starts uh, later this week is my Hanoi City in uh, Schuylkill County. First of all, the pronunciation there for those of us who are not from, I, I've always pronounced it Mahanoi. Well, the locals say Mahanoi, a uh, silent H. <laughs> and, uh, it's tricky. It is tricky, Mahanoi. And uh, some people even call it Mahoney, but that's that standard. Uh, so we were, we were schooled on that. It's Mahanoi City. Uh, but yes, as you said, Scott, it is, you know, just uh, it's northeast of Harrisburg. It's on the way, you know, to Hazleton there off 81. Um, it's a small borough. Um, at its peak, it had, in 1910, it had 16,000 people. It was a booming coal town. And then, as we know, with the coal industry, the steady decline, and Monoy City saw a rapid um, population loss today and has about 4,000 people. Uh, and so we are taking you there. And uh, WITF's Emily Previty, who's part of our Keystone Crossroads team, uh, led the, some of the reporting there um, with our other reporter, Lindsay Lazarski. And um, in the whole podcast, you'll be hearing Emily uh, interviewing um, several residents um, who've suffered fire from fires. Um, fire and blight um, are big problems in Mahanoy City uh, because there's not the population to keep up the housing stock. Um, you have this town that was meant for 16,000 people, and today with 4,000, you have about 26, 27 percent of the homes vacant. Uh, well, and, let's uh, hear, let's hear, now who is this, by the way? The, we have a couple uh, quick bites here from uh, the, the podcast, and then we're going to yeah. get into uh, the, the podcast themselves a little bit, but uh, who are we going to hear for? We're going to hear first from a municipal engineer named Jim Rhodes. Uh, he grew up in the city, um, spent his whole life there. He does private um, consulting work for uh, the with the local government. And um, Jim Rhodes says, you know, blight is a major issue. And you can see it when we were there uh, driving around town. You see blighted properties. You see uh, ruins of fires. Um, and it's not everywhere, but it's, it's highly visible. So this is who we're going to hear okay, from. Okay, so now. which one uh, do you have here? Because I do you want to talk about the not enough uh, jobs, uh, home values first? Yes. Okay, let's yes, go with that. That's a good idea. There's no one easy fix. You know, we don't have the jobs to keep a stock of people with the money and the resources to invest in their homes and, and keep them up. And if one falls down or breaks, you can just go move down the street to another one. They're cheap, you know. 8000 is our assessed. You can buy a house in town for 10, 15 grand that's livable. You know, so it's kind of crazy. Wow. <laughs> that may surprise some people. 
It, it does. And I'll tell you this too, Scott. Um, Jim Rhodes, for example, the property next to his, where he lives is blighted. You know, it's, it's sort of parts of the house are falling down on his house. What he did is he bought that property next to him for $1,000 out of the tax sales, and he's going to bring it down. And he's going to spend about $20,000 to do that. And he's going to knock it down. So he doesn't have a blighted property next to him. Um, but, you know, the fact is it's so cheap <laughs> um, because there's just not the same core of people there and the tax revenue that, that once existed there. Um, but it is a, it's a vicious problem. Uh, it's the cycle of blight and and how do you get on top of it? And it's it's tricky for a, a borough like Monoy City. Yeah, it obviously obviously adds to the to the to the cost for Monoy City to deal with these blighted properties, and and that's part of the distress that the city's seeing. They just don't have the money to fix up these properties. They sit there after a fire, empty, and all the problems that come with that happen, you know, in people's neighborhoods. You know, I'm. I'm curious when you say that uh, they've had these fires what do you mean are they arsons or what's going on well we're not we're we're hoping to get to that <laughs> it's not going we're not going to address that uh, directly in this season because it, it, we need to bury into that you know we heard maybe rumor on the street maybe people uh, their insurance companies stop insuring them because they live on a blighted block um, or that the property's just not valuable anymore and so what do you do you know and that there was some rumors that we heard you know that it's arson we haven't proven that uh, and that's something we might look into um, um, but it is that that is a big question there. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have a little more extended uh, examples of of the podcast about Monoy City. Uh, this one, and I'll I'll just uh, play this one, and then afterwards have the two of you uh, talk about it. We actually have mm-hmm. uh, two parts of it here, but here's the first part. Get this one done, then we gotta do the one over here another day. It's like apartment house, my grandma owns it. So we live here with her to help her out, you know. Nothing to do up here. Yeah, nothing to do at all up here. Did you go to high school here? Yeah, I graduated. What'd you do afterwards? Working at like industries and that, like building trailers. Do you see yourself being able to make it here? No, I've been in and out of jail, getting in trouble here, you know. What's next? Are you gonna stay or? Yeah, I have a little kid and I'm helping my mom right now, like with the bills and that. Until we find something better. Something out of this county, you know. It's a rough county. Tom Cyberling isn't too upbeat either about the future of Monoy City and the surrounding Schuylkill County. He was a longtime school librarian, now he's the director of the local public library. Well, a lot of problems I see. There's too many single parents, too many kids are foster kids, and a lot of these children don't have any guidance. If they had a lot of guidance, maybe this, somebody read a story to them at night or somebody get a library car and bring them to the library. So they have an opportunity to read and to learn. But without that kind of support, it's very hard to do. The biggest thing in Schuylkill County overall, even not only in City, is we don't have any industry. And without industry, you have no opportunities for people to get money, to pay for the luxury they want, maybe a house or a car or whatever. My two sons moved to Philadelphia and Hanover, and one's a lawyer and one's a CEO, because there's no opportunity and financial reward around here. That's the reason why young people don't stay here. There's no industry, nothing to keep people here. 
even the malls. The malls are losing people every week to two big chain stores. Without those, hey, the, the malls are even falling apart. There's going to be eventually no place for anybody even to get their groceries and necessities. So it's not good for Schuylkill County. Everybody looks at Schuylkill County as a, a depressed area. Now let's turn to Dan Lynch. He thinks a lot about the region and its economic situation. He grew up in the area, and today he's the borough manager of Mahanoy City. And that's basically like being the captain of a sinking ship. You're walking through the door knowing the town is struggling because every town in the area is struggling. You know, the first thing I notice is, you know, the borough really just gets by most years and is tries to keep things as run as smoothly and cheaply as possible because they do understand a lot of population is elderly, a lot of the population is lower income, so they don't want to run right out and say, well, we'll just raise taxes. So over the years, and even while I've been here, as people retired or left because of injury or disability, they sometimes didn't uh, replace the position. You know, you can go back in the 90s and they had 16 guys working on their street crew where we have three now. And look back in old photographs of the police, there's 14, 15 full-time cops, now there's three. I mean, so, I mean, they've pared down the operation as the town has shrunk in turn. And it kind of creates a problem because you are able to do less and less with a town that's not getting any smaller with the infrastructure maybe getting worse and worse because you don't have the funds to keep it up to the standards you might want so you're that's pressing because you're trying to keep up essentially Collectively, if you're looking at this area, this region, it's not unlike a city like Detroit, where they had a loss of industry, which led to entire sections being, you know, slowly given over to blight as the jobs leave. So without an excess or a number of jobs to bring people in, you get overstocked and then slowly, you know, blight builds up and it has a sickness-like effect. You know, if you have one blighted house on the, on the block, it has a tendency to spread. It does uh, damage to the adjoining structures and just goes from there and it becomes difficult. Uh, and then as your housing prices drop, uh, you tend to, you know, you'll have a population that may not have the ability to keep the necessary upkeep on their home so they you know a ten thousand dollar investment to maintain a home might be too much for an, a widow or somebody who's very low income so then when they leave that home it's already in it's a sort of a state of disrepair so the there's no incentive to rehabilitate and then it can very quickly go from on the teetering on the brink to too far gone Having jobs in the area is important. You know, we had a business move in called Fabcon. That's a good employer for the area. They make concrete panels and it's well a good paying job. A few years ago, there was a lot of talk about a potential cargo airport in Luzerne County. And I think that's completely dead now. It was fighting a long legal battle, but uh, that goes back 10 years. Something of that where there's gonna be, you know, a thousand jobs or 1500 jobs would be huge for this area because we just have a tremendous amount of vacant houses and low, low home values. So if you get good employment in the area, you can raise those up and that would help spur, you know, the local economy. You know, 
one of the things I took away from that is that uh, you're talking specifically about Mahanoy City in uh, Schuylkill County. But what was described there could be, I don't know, hundreds, who knows how many uh, other communities, uh, small communities in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, would you agree with that? That's part of the reason that this is such an important subject matter for for people in Pennsylvania and beyond. You know, we're talking about the loss of coal and the loss of steel. We're talking about these communities that are in what we call Act 47. It's the state's program to help distressed municipalities. Um, there are about two dozen uh, in that in that program and more on the way in or more having come out, but very few having come out, I have to say, and that's one of the problems with the program. But yeah, this is on many people's minds. And if you look at the percentage of the population in Pennsylvania, uh, the percentage of people who live in a a, a distressed community, however you define it, it, it approaches a, a quarter of the population, depending on how you define it. So this is really an important issue for everybody. And, and I should say that one of the things we're trying to do with Keystone Crossroads is unite people across the state. You know, it is a little bit unusual for people in, say, Clareton, which is near Pittsburgh, or uh, Altoona, or Scranton, or, you know, or Chester near Philadelphia, to sort of look at each other and see how they're handling problems, because there's just this sort of parochial divide in Pennsylvania. Um, but what we're trying to do is say, look, somebody's solution here can work there, too. So you should pay attention to each other. Those uh, communities that you mentioned, Naomi, are others that uh, you're focusing on on, uh, on uh, Grapple True, right? We're going to Absolutely. be going. Absolutely. Yeah. Stephanie, tell us, yeah. tell us about the other communities. We're going to be going right to Monoy City, Scranton, uh, Clareton, as, um, as Naomi described. That's a town uh, about 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh, a steel town. Um, the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Hazelwood, uh, where there's going to be a big redevelopment uh, on a former mill site. Um, we're going to the city of Chester here uh, nearby, um, you know, Philadelphia, and a small borough um, called Melbourne, which is also near Philadelphia. Um, and as Naomi Naomi said, and you asked, Scott, these are representative of um, communities, many communities across our country, too. Mm. We only have about 45 seconds left. I want to thank uh, the two of you for being with us today. Uh, and I think we've whetted their appetite a little bit for uh, Grapple and what's uh, the podcast coming up uh, later this week. How do people find or subscribe to the podcast? Uh, so you can go on any kind of podcast platform, iTunes, Stitcher, um, any other kind of program, uh, and you, s you hit the subscribe button, and then the episodes will appear weekly. Uh, just search for the word grapple, and right, and it'll come up. Yeah, grapple. And uh, we launch our first episode on uh, this Wednesday. Uh, we'll be starting in the city of Chester, and we'll also be having companion episodes to each place-based episode you hear. Uh, you're going to hear from maybe an economist or a political scientist uh, to give you that broader perspective. And there our photos at keystonecrossroads.org slash grapple. Lots of photos and additional material for people to see. And we have a link, of course, on our website witf.org. Naomi Sterepin is the editor and Stephanie Marutis is the executive producer Keystone Crossroads. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank, Thank you, you, Scott. Scott. It's great. Coming up on tomorrow's program, Pennsylvania State-owned university faculty may go on strike. We'll talk about that tomorrow.